Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone, and welcome back. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Accidental Activist, presented by Mercedes-Benz. In each episode this season, we're profiling different young women named Mercedes who are chasing big dreams because once a girl starts something, amazing things happen. Today's young woman hopes to inspire confidence in others, both on and off the stage. I am Mercedes and I'm 19 years old. I'm passionate about theater, but within that, I'm also passionate about promoting self-love and body positivity. Growing up, I guess I didn't really see like a glamorous, bigger, plus-size woman or man acting because I guess that just isn't the American beauty standard. I want to impact the world by just following my dreams and showing people that it doesn't matter how big you are or how pretty you are or any of that. It doesn't matter what you look like. You can do whatever you want. It was very important to see diversity and representation within the industry and anything to do with bodies because growing up, I guess I didn't really see that too much. To be a part of the I Am Mercedes campaign is honestly so amazing. And it's really awesome that the brand is working to share stories from other women all across the country. What a great story from such an amazing young woman. Confidence is so critical when chasing your dreams, and I'm thrilled Mercedes has the spirit and grit that will surely take her all the way. And now, on to this week's episode. I was drowning out, suffocating, strangling all of the feminine parts of myself so that I could pretend to be masculine. We've normalized abuse and the way we treat people then we chalk it up to just boys will be boys. I was feeling so not enough to talk about being man enough. You reject the label of toxic masculinity. Help me understand that. I don't believe that masculinity is inherently toxic. And if we as boys and men cannot become safe places for ourselves, the world will never be a safe place for you. Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Today, I'm speaking with Justin Baldoni. Justin became a heartthrob and a household name for his portrayal of Raphael Solano on the hit TV show Jane the Virgin. But he would go on to surprise many by swapping his actor's cap for the director's chair. In 2019, he co-founded the production company Wayfarer Studios, which also has a philanthropic branch, Wayfarer Foundation, that benefits homeless residents of Los Angeles. But even if you've never seen a single episode of Jane the Virgin or watched something he's directed, the chances are pretty high that you've come across him on social media. Swiping through Reels or TikTok, you can't escape clips from his wildly popular podcast, Man Enough. 
The show explores and challenges how the messages of masculinity show up in everyday life. Now, as someone who's personally working on issues related to empowering women and girls, I was really excited to talk to Justin. I also wanted to hear about his new book, Boys Will Be Human, which is written for adolescent boys, and try to understand why he felt compelled to write this book in this moment. This season, we're focusing on changemakers who are pushing themselves far beyond their own personal comfort zones, armed with the intention of making this world a better place for us all. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Justin Baldoni, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I am thrilled to have you on The Accidental Activist and to be spending this time with you to share with our listeners just this incredible journey you have been on and continue to really deconstruct ideas of masculinity and these these really harmful norms um, that are harmful to men and, and to society as a whole. Let's go back. Let's go back to your childhood and start there. Growing up as a kid in Oregon... What kind of man did you want to be when you grew up? What were your ideas? I wanted to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. Stallone. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Now take your big stick and your boyfriend and find the best to catch. I wanted to be a man who wouldn't have to worry about being bullied. I wanted to be a man who could kick anybody's ass, protect myself. Uh, I wanted to be a man who had his choice of which girl or woman he wanted. I wanted to be a man who wasn't so sensitive, who didn't have all the feelings that I had, uh, or at least seemed far less complicated than I felt at the time. A lot of it came from wanting to be the opposite of who I was then versus having a dream or a goal of who I wanted to be. It was more out of fear. So rooted in your experiences and looking to counter those experiences. Rooted in insecurity. In insecurity. Yeah. The cornerstone of what you you laid out, strong men, muscular men in Van Damme and Stallone and Schwarzenegger with these particular body types. And you yourself said at the beginning, you mentioned bullying. How bad was the bullying? It was bad. You know, it's funny. I, I grew up in L.A., so we moved to Oregon when I was 10. So I had a bit of a, a culture shock going from a very diverse place to a not diverse place with a very different group of people. Before I moved though, I like I remember coping with my my insecurity, like coping with not knowing maybe how to fit in and have a lot of friends with kind of being a bully. So I was I was a bit of a bully when I was, you know, maybe 9, 10 years old because I didn't know any other way. I remember being chased around my school in LA because I was asked to be in a gang and I said no. And then mm-hmm. they chased me and they stabbed me with a stick. That's a memory oh that my I have. Goodness. How old were you? Um, it was probably third grade. And then I moved to Oregon and the bullying was really interesting because I was the city kid now and they were right. country kids. And it got to the point where I was, I had so much anxiety. I would sneak out early at lunch just so that I wouldn't have to 
face one of the bullies, you know, who, who was physically threatening me on a daily basis. So it was, it was, it was quite a bit. So as a response to that, I was like, well, if I was just bigger or stronger or right, meaner, right. then I wouldn't have to deal with that. How were you shaping your idea of the ideal image? Was it the images and, and the stimuli you were getting from what was around you? I think socialization comes from all angles when you're dealing with masculinity, right? So socialization definitely came from the movies I was consuming and the TV shows I was consuming. But this is what we do. Who we are. Live for nothing. Or die for something. It came in part from my own father. And his drive for success came from his father. It came from the boys at school who were at the top of the hierarchy. You know, the quote-unquote alphas, if you will. Right, right. It came from everywhere. I think that's what happens when you are a young boy or girl or person in the country. It, you, you're hit from all angles. And they're generally all saying very similar things, which is which you need to, to you, be uh, a certain way in order to be accepted and to be fully embraced, unless you go the complete opposite way. I have friends who were like, screw socialization. I have no chance of being that. So they went the opposite way. And then the other side of it is, you know, guys like me who were right on the precipice and just, and were like close and wanted that and did everything they could to fit in, to be that despite the costs, the heavy costs, which was the emotional turmoil as Bell Hooks describes it, the soul murder that so many of us young boys are, are faced with, right? It's that idea of the first act of violence that men commit in a patriarchal society is not violence against women, it's against violence themselves. against themselves. And I absolutely committed many acts of violence against myself as I was drowning out, suffocating, strangling all of the feminine parts of myself so that I could pretend to be masculine. What was the most egregious thing that you did to yourself? I did so many egregious things to myself. I did, I did egregious physical things to myself to try to change. I did uh, emotional things to myself. I mean, speaking on soul murder, I mean, that's really about the, the suppression of emotions, right? Not, not necessarily the, the physical things. I mean, I think the most egregious thing, the thing that I have the most remorse for was, you know, in a culture like ours, in a society that's built on power and dominance, when you are a boy and you so desperately want to fit in, want to be liked, want to avoid being bullied, want to just have some sort of like homeostasis that doesn't actually make you feel like you're, you know, you're dying all the time. You're always swimming, catching air. You're trying, you're trying to feel like you have value. And when your power is taken away, the way that the pyramid scheme of the patriarchy works is that you must then find a way to exert power over somebody else. And so I think the most egregious thing would have been taking all of my pain, not allowing myself to feel it because there's no safe space for young boys to feel their pain, especially among other young boys, and masking that pain, bearing it deep down, and then trying to find somebody else to dominate. Mm. And hurt I people, heard a lot of people that people. way. I heard yeah. a lot of people that way. I hurt myself that way. And I was such a sensitive, empathetic kid that I would chalk up if I bullied somebody or called somebody a name or, or laughed when popular kids or bullies would make fun of somebody else. 
I would do it in a way so that the attention wouldn't come back to me, not realizing what I was doing to that person. So for that moment, I was, I was transferring my pain onto them. I wasn't the spotlight, so I wasn't getting bullied so I could laugh at them. But somewhere deep down, I was so empathetic. I knew what I was doing was so wrong. And I would go home and I'd feel terrible about it. I'm just struck by the pain and the turmoil and the insecurity. And the obvious question that I have is, did you talk to your parents? Did you talk to your father about this I don't know, it's a form of cognitive dissonance, this idea of what masculinity should be versus where you were. I didn't put all the pieces together until I was probably in my late 20s. I hate to say it, but this is a very typical experience for middle school, high school boys. It's just not talked about. It's seen as normal, right? When you keep getting pushed to the edge, you don't realize what the line is anymore. And we've just normalized this behavior. I mean, just look at fraternities. Look at sports teams. You look at hazing, right? Where does this come from? It comes from the military. <laughs> like this is just a normal thing now. This is what men do to each other. We've normalized abuse and the way we treat people and bullying and all sorts of things. And we chalk it up to just boys will be boys, which is why I wrote my book, right? Boys will be human. I, uh, I, I, I did. I remember talking to my mom. I remember crying one day with her and, you know, my mom did the best she could. I remember she told me, she's like, they're just jealous. That was one of the things. Mm. It was like, they're just jealous. Mm. And I was like, that's not true. They're not jealous. <laughs> mom, they're not jealous. They're mean. <laughs> they're terrors. These are terrible people. They're not jealous. Which isn't really getting to the root of your pain no. anyway, right? No, no, no. It was one of these things. And, and God bless her. It wasn't her fault, but she was doing the best that she could. But I remember asking my dad to teach me how to fight. I was like, can you teach me how to punch at least so I can defend myself? Like, and that was such a that was such a shit show of an experience because here's my dad, this very sensitive, kind man. He's 5'9", successful in business, but not like an imposing alpha figure by any means. An elegant man, you know. He's just, he's just like a ball of love. And I remember asking him to teach me how to fight and we're sitting there in our living room and I swung at him and I hit him on accident. And I could clearly hurt him. But here my dad was trying to not show that I hurt him. So like, here's two men, like he's hiding the fact that I hurt him because I clearly hurt his jaw. I'm hiding the fact that I feel bad that I hurt him. And that says everything we need to know about everything. masculinity. Everything, everything that one moment captured there. Can you point to those experiences that caused you to start to rethink your understanding of masculinity as you grew older? It was an amalgamation of tons of experiences. Just speaking for myself, as someone who's extremely empathetic to the point where it's a problem at times, I had to bury that part of myself to survive as a boy and as a man. And over time, I started to recognize like, wait, treating that girl that way, that woman that way in my 20s, that feels good for the moment I have power. And afterwards, I would feel terrible. I'd find myself in situations where I would notice that I was talking different or my posture would be different or I'd puff up my chest and I'd, I'd want to be powerful or dominant and I'd say things that I didn't mean or I'd be 
abrasive and hurt someone's feelings in front of somebody else for that momentary glimpse of power. And I would be left feeling terrible. And at night I would think about it and I dream about it. I'd wake up the next day and I'd beat myself up and I'm like, why am I doing this? And, and those kind of microaggressions of the soul would build and build and build. And it got to the place where I was in my twenties and I was just like, who am I? I don't know who I am. I don't even like myself. I'm like 50 different people, depending on who I'm with. So I just kind of started to deconstruct it in therapy. And um, I was like, well, if I feel bad every time I do this, maybe I shouldn't do this. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> I started really thinking about the way I, I, I treated women and what women were to me and then my language around women and, and how I was socialized to view women as objects and not people. And meeting my wife was a huge thing. You know, just the idea that I didn't have the ability to not talk over the woman who was the most important person to me. And if I was talking over her, who, who else was I talking over? It's a constant evolution. There's no arrival. Um, and so I'm still learning. The journey. It's yeah. the journey. The journey's the destination. You clearly were doing all of this work internally, personally. So let me ask about the shift. When you first started talking publicly about the idea of being man enough, how fearful were you of the, the response you would get? I always joke that I, I think, you know, God gives us all these unique gifts. And one of mine has been stupidity. <laughs> or blind faith, maybe not stupidity, blind faith. Willful, willful ignorance. Look, I am, um, <laughs> most of my success has come from having this deep-seated, almost burning in my gut that I have to do something or say something and taking a step without necessarily knowing where the path's going to take me. It started with this strange moment when the TV show I was on blew up and um, Instagram was not, was a, not a thing that I really knew much about, but I started getting all these followers and people started caring and I had a publicist and I was starting to become a little bit famous. And I've always believed that we're here to be of service and that whatever privilege and power we have must be used as a tool for the betterment of humanity. That's a fundamental Baha'i belief that every human being on this planet is endowed with the capacity that can impact and change the world around them. And we have to, with our occupations, with our time, use that as a form of service. And so for me, it was like, okay, if I'm falling into this, how can I best be of service? That was where it started. And the accident part of it was I was sharing my soul. I was using social media and interviews and things to share what I cared about. I was talking about my wife and my adoration for her. And we were pregnant with a girl and my hopes and dreams for her. And I, I remember early on, I shared this like, dear women. I think I wrote like, dear women. It was like this kind of, I don't know, this, this rant about what I hoped for women, you know, and, and my daughter who was unborn. And I remember just how, how much traction that got and magazines picked it up. And I was very confused. I was like, why? I was like, that's weird. And as I dug into that, I noticed how few men in my position were doing that. Speaking truthfully, speaking, speaking truthfully from about a hope for a world that was equal, about a, 
a world that women were respected and seen um, that was fair and equitable. I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, there's a problem here. Mm. Mixed with all of the the personal interactions I've had with women and people and and the stories. I mean, I, I was always closer with women than I was with men growing up. And the stories that I just heard and heard and heard about what these men would be doing to my friends and how men were treating women in the world and, and just where we were at that time. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to start sharing this more. I'm going to use on social media like a like a diary. And that's really how it started. It was through all of these conversations, through realizing there were so few men talking about it, through hearing from women how healing it was to hear a man share some of these things, that I realized there was a big problem and that the bar was very, very low. And it wasn't long after that that Ted women reached out to me and asked me to speak. That's how low the bar was, that there were just so few men um, with followings at the time that were sharing anything like I was sharing. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Justin Baldoni when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. Here's the second half of my conversation with director, actor, activist, and author, Justin Baldoni. Let's talk about that TED Talk that you gave in 2017 that went viral. And it's a beautiful talk. Um, Share with us what went into composing those words. Top two or three scariest, most anxiety-filled experiences of my life. Because, you know, what nobody knows about TED is that you don't have teleprompters. And you generally can't have note cards. And, you know, TED is, you know, ideas worth sharing. Technology, education, and design. I'm not any of those things. (laughs) (laughs) So there was just... massive imposter syndrome, which I carry in spades in all things that I do. And being asked by by Pat, who runs TED Women, to do this and thinking, well, isn't there somebody else? Isn't there somebody better? You know, at the time I was, I was on Jane the Virgin. I asked for time off for my son to be born. I couldn't even get that. I, I think I got five days or three days which when my son really was born. really messed up. When you're one of the leads of a show, you can't get time off unless the whole production shuts down. And I'm like, but I just want to be there for my wife. So this TED Talk came 10 days after my son was born, in which case I couldn't get time off for that. And then I was asking for a couple of days off for this TED Talk. And it was just a very, very stressful period. I remember holding my newborn son and walking around the block for three hours trying to memorize my talk. Oh, goodness. I'm thinking to myself, like, what am I doing? Wait, I'm doing this for him. And I'm just like, you know, memorizing my talk on my way to learn my lines for the show and, you know, working for 16 hours a day. And then it was, it was really tough. You know, one of the things that I do very well is I ask for help. And I reached out to people who are far smarter than me And I consulted. I said, I have this huge opportunity to make a difference. I don't want to screw this up. What are some things that you think you wish could be said with a platform like this? And I sat down with Ted Bunch from A Call to Men and Michael Kimmel, you know, these experts, these fathers of the masculinity and gender equality movement as men. I crowdsourced, I remember sending an email to like 30 or 40 people that know me very well. 
And I said, I'm about to give a TED talk about what it means to be a man. What are some things about me that make me qualified to give this TED talk? Because I feel like I'm not supposed to do this. I literally crowdsourced from my friends inspiration that I was enough because I was feeling so not enough to talk about being man enough. But I got a challenge for all the guys because men love challenges. I challenge you to see if you can use the same qualities that you feel make you a man to go deeper into yourself, your strength, your bravery, your toughness. Can we redefine what those mean and use them to explore our hearts? Are you brave enough to be vulnerable, to reach out to another man when you need help, to dive headfirst into your shame? Are you strong enough to be sensitive? to cry whether you are hurting or you're happy, even if it makes you look weak? Are you confident enough to listen to the women in your life, to hear their ideas and their solutions, to hold their anguish and actually believe them, even if what they're saying is against you? And will you be man enough to stand up to other men when you hear locker room talk? When you hear stories of sexual harassment, when you hear your boys talking about grabbing ass or getting her drunk, will you actually stand up and do something so that one day we don't have to live in a world where a woman has to risk everything and come forward to say the words, me too? There's been the TED Talk, then there's been the Man Enough Conversation series, there's been the podcast, all of it, this deeper dive into to masculinity. You've been on the journey for a while now, and obviously you've got this, this new book that's on its way to, to a different, younger audience. What did you learn about yourself in that first part of the journey and about masculinity? And, and if, if not just you, the way people responded to you and those conversations. I learned that we had a major problem. And I remember saying to friends and even to people in the industry, you know, and I think it was 2016, 2015, that I felt that masculinity was going to be the conversation in five or six years, because how could it not be? It was linked to everything. And I felt like we were looking everywhere else, <laughs> right? And that's just something that we seem to do, especially if men control the majority of media and hold the majority of positions of power. We'll look everywhere else. We'll blame everything else except ourselves. I really believed that if men are the problem, then we're also the solution. And so it was very, it was something that gave me a lot of hope. Um, what did I learned about myself, I, I learned that I was stronger than I thought. I learned that I had something to say because for a while I didn't feel like I was worthy or that I should be taking up the space that I was taking. I've tried to quit. I tried to quit the TED Talk. I've tried to quit writing my book. <laughs> I have tried to quit almost, I've tried to quit my podcast. <laughs> There's so many things that I've tried to quit in this space because this is brushing up against one of my biggest wounds. It is the deep desire to be seen as a man by men. Like when you are bullied, when you are called names, you know, when there's rumors spread about you when you're a young boy that aren't true and everyone's laughing at you when you walk down the hall, when you have these traumas, I just wanted to be liked and seen by other men. And for me, this work constantly puts me in a situation where 
I am challenging the very belief structure and the system that is held by all of those men that I wanted right. to be liked and seen right. by, right? Mm-hmm. So by nature of coming out and doing a TED Talk about masculinity, I am seen as all of the things I didn't want to be seen as when I was young. When I ask men to embrace the feminine parts of themselves instead of reject them in 2015, I'm essentially allowing them to call me all of the things they called me growing up. So that's what I mean by it's, it's brushing up against a central trauma and a wound that I had growing up. So doing the TED Talk, I'm coming out and I'm saying something very unpopular. And you know, it, it, you feel like a traitor to your own gender, which is essentially the, the box. It's the prison of the patriarchy. It's what happens. It's how we keep men in line. It's how we, this is how we force men to make decisions that are opposite to their integrity, to the belief systems that they are raised with, because they would rather do the wrong thing than the right thing and be traitors to their gender. I'm constantly labeled all of the things that I'm labeled when deep down the men who I want to reach oftentimes won't hear me or won't listen to me because of this idea that I'm trying to feminize men, which is this, this pollution that's happening that we're seeing happen in a lot of, uh, in a lot of circles, especially uh, on the right. So I, I want to take a moment and, and flag something here. Everything you're saying about the wound, the, the, the bullying, because it's still bullying in, in a different form, the, the casting out that happens to men who dare challenge the patriarchy, all of that to me, as a woman hearing it from you, sounds to me inherently toxic. And yet you reject the label of toxic masculinity and say, at least you've been quoted as saying, you don't believe in it. Help me understand that because it seems to me you've just spoken to it. Yeah, it's not that I don't believe in it. I believe that words matter, absolutely. But I also believe that we tend to be fixated on words and attach ourselves to words and phrases because they're zeitgeisty or cool or somebody creates them and then suddenly we're using them and we don't even know where they came from or who first said it or why. We just are taking it and it's coming out of our mouths and boom, toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity. And I'm somebody that spends a lot of time trying to understand the opposing viewpoints. I go out of my way to hear what maybe people that don't share my perspective feel. And the more I learned about how men are feeling, the plight of men, the insecurity of men, the anxiety that they're living with but not able to share, the depression numbers, the suicide numbers, looking around and seeing how easy it is to mobilize men with anger and fear um, and the rhetoric that's being used and how the men that I most wanted to reach won't listen if I use certain words, I decided to become unattached to the words because it's more important to me to reach somebody who needs the message than it is to be attached to a phrase because it's in the zeitgeist or because everybody's using it. Now, is it inherently toxic? Hell yeah, it is. 
So to be clear, it's not that you're saying, as you said, actually, you said it's not that you don't believe in it. No. It's just not language you choose to use. Yeah, it's not that I don't believe it exists. I don't believe that masculinity is inherently toxic. But at the same time, the things that we're talking about, sure, you could call them toxic masculinity, but I'm not saying them. I'm not choosing to say them because there are words that have been weaponized by political parties, <laughs> um, by ideologies. Um, and we're in a place right now in our culture where despite knowing right from wrong, we will align and stick to certain ideologies because it's us versus them. And there's no space for dialogue. And so I've just chosen to not say toxic masculinity and maybe sure it's, well, you're just coddling these men. Okay, fine. I can coddle them. You can go after them any way you want, but I'm a man. So I also understand what it feels like to feel like you can't call any other man when you're alone because it's scary because you don't know if that man will use that against you. These things allow me to have compassion for those very same men who might be attacking me, who might be triggered by the things that I say, and who might turn off completely if I say toxic masculinity or come at them. Because I don't believe we can affect or change anything if we come at men. I believe we have to call them in. To those who say to, to bring them in, you first have to call them out. To anyone who feels that, I, I spend 10 minutes to an hour to five hours and, and listen to Loretta J. Ross and her incredible work. I don't believe calling out is helpful in any possible way. All it does is it, it radicalizes people and pushes them closer to the fringes where there's a support system of other people who feel the same way. And we wonder why the gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So let's talk about that expression of radicalization in, 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 certainly in, in the masculine space. We are seeing, quite frighteningly, at least I, I say it from my perspective, this um, strengthening the strengthening of incel culture. Yeah. And, and for those who don't know what incel culture is, it is um, this, by definition, most of the time, men. Um, it, it's it's a subculture of men who are deeply misogynistic, who believe women are the reason that they lack intimacy Ugh. in their lives. Ugh. So they're involuntarily celibate incel. Talk to me. I mean, you are a seeker of truth. You are a thinker. You are a deep diver. Where is this coming from as we talk about this radicalization uh, and what is happening in, in spaces where men aren't allowed to, you know, to be different shapes, forms, versions of themselves? I mean, it's a, that's a, we could spend hours on that. Like it, it all comes down to a general feeling of not being enough. You know, it's funny, it's like they're often the same men who don't believe the patriarchy exists. <laughs> and yet what I'm out here trying to say is, no, man, it's hurting you. It's hurting you bad. It's hurting you and that's why you're hurting other people. It's, it's a belief that women are here for our pleasure, <laughs> right? And it all comes down to the way that we're socialized growing up. I mean, just in the words that we, like, what's the worst thing that I could be called when I'm seven years old? A girl. Well, how am I going to like ever grow up respecting a girl if that's the worst thing I could be called? We've created a us versus them mentality and then we're supposed to live together and fall in love and respect each other. I mean, Bell Hooks writes about this beautifully. This is a byproduct of deep, deep pain and loneliness. And 
We live at a time where people don't feel free to say what they think. And so you have a few people who are out there saying all of the things that uh, they think should be said and essentially trying to mobilize a very small but growing group of people who are in so much pain and they're not looking to the source of the pain. The source of the pain is not women. The source of the pain is the system that is keeping them trapped in their own bodies, in their own minds, in their own hearts, right? That's the soul murder that I talked about early on. And when you spend your life not expressing how you feel, when you don't have deep friendships with other men or other women, when the only women in your life are there to try to conquer or conquest, because at the end of the day, this is a game of power. And there's nothing that speaks to power more than sex. So these are things that are intertwined. When you don't have that outlet, when you spend all day, I imagine, watching porn, right? What do we know about porn? Well, the part of the brain that lights up when you're watching porn, the MRI shows, is the part of the brain that associates people with objects, right? So we're watching a person having sex, doing all the things that we want, and the part that's lighting up is the part that identifies an object. Well, how am I going to ever respect a woman if she's an object? If I see her this image online, and then suddenly she's in person. Well, she's an object. She's there for my pleasure, right? It's like an animal. So you have all of these things together. And at the end of the day, I just believe that it is the system that is hurting us and killing us and radicalizing us in that way. Uh, it's the reason why one in four men uh, end up taking their lives. And we're seeing this number increase. We are sad. We are lonely. We don't realize that the people we should be mad at are not women but the people who control and have built the system itself. And like the matrix, we have to break out. The only way that we can break out is by being vulnerable. The only way we can break out is by reaching out and asking for help. All the very things that we're told we can't do. You know, all I got to say is you don't need to have three sports cars to be enough. You don't need to have five women on your arm or be dating and sleeping or fucking with all these people to be enough. You don't need to have a certain amount of money in your bank account to be enough. None of that is ever going to make you feel like you are enough. It's just going to put a Band-Aid on a bigger problem. And if we can't start teaching our boys that who they are as they are is enough, to teach them how to respect women, that women are people and not objects to be conquered, um, that success is something that can happen Without a lot of money, it can happen in your marriage. It can happen in your relationships. It doesn't have to be a qualifier. Um, we have to start teaching our boys this stuff so that they can have some tools in their toolkit and some weapons to go out and fight in this world because otherwise we're going to lose everybody. And if we as boys and men cannot become safe places for ourselves, the world will never be a safe place for you. So let's talk about the book, Boys Will Be Human, which is aimed at a younger audience of boys than your first book. Explain to me why you feel that this is the moment that you need to speak directly to this particular demographic. This was always kind of the, the goal, which is I got to get to the boys before they become men, before, before the bullying gets bad, before the porn use becomes completely addictive before the abuse. I just felt like, um, like what's that, what's that Chinese proverb? Like the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the second best time is today. <laughs> I 
It's kind of like that. It's, I didn't have this book. And I kept thinking like, what, what would my life have been like if I had a brother or a friend or if my dad could have articulated all of the things that I've learned in the last 10 years? What would be living in my body right now? Would I have as much pain and trauma and guilt and sorrow? Would I have hurt as many people as I've hurt? Would I be happier and more free? I'm just like, what would I be like? And so I just set out to write that book, you know, the book for the 10-year-old me who found porn for the first time, you know, and the 12-year-old me who was put in a sexual situation that he didn't know what to do, and and the 16-year-old me that wasn't ready for the first time that I was engaging in versions of sex, and and the me that was bullied and the me that was then trying to overcompensate and bully others. Like, what could I have said to myself that could have spoken to everything that I know now? And that's what I tried to do is I tried to write a book that was honest and funny and, and from this place of like, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm your friend. Think of me like a friend or like a brother. Just think of me as someone who's going to tell you the truth because there are a lot of things that we don't talk about that we need to talk about, especially for our young boys. How do you hope this new book will be used? I hope it will be a tool that parents use, honestly. I, I would love parents to read it with their kids. I believe that moms should read it. If I can get dads to read it, um, you know, I, I hope that they will. And I believe it really should be a tool that starts conversation more than anything. Because I think what we need to have is real, honest conversations with our young boys. We're not doing that. And by not having conversations with them, we're not teaching them how to have uncomfortable conversations. We are desperate. We are desperate for information. We should not be resorting to Google to learn about life. We should be learning about it from our mentors, from our fathers, from our mothers, from our older brothers. And there's, no, there's been no handbook. There's been no rule book. It's not our parents' fault. And again, there's so many more topics besides sex and porn and consent in this book, but we've made these topics taboo. And if we're uncomfortable in our own skin and our own bodies sexually or with all of the various things, if we're still trying to figure it out, how are we going to talk to our kids about it? And so we just, we push, we kick the can. We don't do it. I mean, these are the things that we have to stop. And the only way we can stop them is by having conversations. So really it's a tool that I hope will be a conversation starter. Mm. As we bring this this fascinating conversation to a close for others who are listening to us who are just deeply inspired by this journey that you're on and this this journey of service and also want to to be of service what's the one piece of advice you'd give them after all these years of of activism and continuing activism well, what would you say to people who who want to be of service don't let your fear of perfection stop you from entering the race. Don't let your desire to get it right stop you from using your voice and your privilege and your unique gifts that only you have because we need you. And um, the ability to sit it out is a privilege in itself. And yeah, it's scary. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to do the wrong thing. You're going to piss people off. Not everyone's going to agree with you. But at the end of your life, at the end of your days, you'll only have you to be accountable to. 
those voices will all be gone. And you don't want to be asking yourself what I could have done, who I could have helped, how I could have been a service if I wasn't afraid. Justin Baldoni, it's been such um, an inspiring conversation for me and I know for for the listeners. I, I want to thank you for the work you're doing. I want to wish you the very best with this latest book. Oh, thank you so and, much. And, and keep doing the work. Thank you. We appreciate you. I have to be honest, I don't often get the opportunity to have these kinds of conversations with the men in my life. So I came away from this conversation with a new perspective and feeling really inspired. Justin's internal personal struggle with his own masculinity set him on this path of activism. And as much as he has tried to fight or reject it, he's been unable to escape the fact that this is his calling. Justin's superpower is his empathy. It's the fame that gave him the platform, but it's his empathetic nature that brought others into the conversation and continues to propel his efforts for change. And in our patriarchal world, we need to be opening up the conversation to as many people as possible because misogyny and sexism touch every part of society. Quite simply, we need more men like Justin, men who are comfortable with their own vulnerability and can provide a safe space for other men to also explore that softer side. His new book, Boys Will Be Human, is out now. Everyone should read it or get it for a friend. We've all got to engage in this conversation to ensure future generations grow up in a safer, more equitable society. Thank you so much to all of our listeners and thank you to our season sponsor, Mercedes-Benz. As always, check the show notes for resources and learning materials from our guests. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez, Taylor Williamson and Chelsea Daniel. Our editor is Liz Smith and our production assistant is Abby Delk. Guest booking by Mary Hollis Williams of Good Talent Lodge. Special thanks to Arella Productions. Take care, everyone. Until the next time, bye for now.